The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think most of you know we'll have small groups later tonight. And the main topic will be, uh, because we're finishing up our discussion on the drawbacks of sensuality, the drawbacks of sense experience, we'll talk, emphasize that in our small group conversations tonight. But before I share a little bit about uh, that topic, and then for the last two weeks we'll look into the escape, which the guided meditation was somewhat tuned to tonight. It would be nice just to check with a couple folks about the meditation. And, and uh, but we're, we're exploring as we sit, and it's a little bit, you know, it's nice to do this kind of practice when the mind's more settled. Some of you coming right from busy day might not have been so easy. Where we're, because the, the reality of non-grasping, the mind that doesn't grasp, of course, is available in any moment. And uh, the habit energy will be, of course, there's always experience arising and the habit of the mind is always to be relating to whatever predominant experience there is, to be relating to it as if it has some personal significance because it's neutral, its, it's personal significance is, I don't really care about you because you're neutral. Or if it's unpleasant, you know, I care about you because you're unpleasant. Or if it's, unple- uh, if it's pleasant, I care about it because it's pleasant. So we're, we're looking at the mind that isn't orienting around the experiences that are being known, that are coming and going. And there are lots of tricks to doing this, right? For example, loving kindness, the flavor of love, the experience of love, because in a way, that object of love, then we can take the attention away from all the things we love, right? Because what's really relevant is the love. Or what's really relevant is the non-attachment, which is sort of the direction I was pointing you tonight in the guided set. Or space, being aware of the space as opposed to what's coming and going in the space of the mind. But any questions about the guided set or any comments that arose, uh, comments about what arose for you in the sit tonight that you'd like to share with the group before we go on? So you might want, if there's nothing, you might want to just explore this in your the last two weeks as we look at the escape. So the Buddha taught in terms of living, breathing in this world of sensuality, being a sensual being, a being that's sensitive to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and all of our thoughts, all the mental formations about sense experience, Right? So he teaches us about the very real experience of gratification, the very real drawback or limitation, the danger of sense experience, which we're learning, hopefully, is the strong tendency to have a self-view about sense experience, to have an opinion, to be attached to sense experience. And the, he teaches about the escape, so, 
in terms of a shift in the mind's understanding, the understanding it has about or its relationship to sense experience, that has to do with the escape. And uh, one of the great uh, short passages is actually involves a layperson, not a monk, not the Buddha, and this layperson's name is Chitta. Many of you have heard this. Um, and uh, he was a very wise layperson who had studied with the Buddha, listened to the Buddha a lot, practiced well. And he liked to go where the monks and the other non-Buddhist sort of uh, Buddhist monks, you know, the other ascetics at the time of the Buddha, would be discussing practice you know, after their meal. And he would go around and he'd listen in. And one day he was listening in to some of the Buddhist monks, the monks that were practicing or the ascetics that were practicing under the guidance of the Buddha. And they were discussing about sensuality. And they were wondering, the debate was, you know, among the small group of monks, you know, is the problem that I have a sensitive eye, like in terms of beautiful forms or attractive forms that we see with our eye, is the problem that I have this sensitivity to sight or is the problem that there are beautiful things to see? Right? And you could do the same with ear, or you could do the same with touch. But they were talking about form, seeing things with your eye. So they were debating, you know, some people, I guess, thinking, you know, if only I wasn't sensitive, then my mind wouldn't have problems. And others were thinking, if only there weren't attractive forms to be seen, I'd be okay. And then the, they saw Chitta listening in, and they said, well, what do you think? And so... Chitta um, said to them, Venerable sirs, it is just as if a black ox and a white ox were joined with a single collar or yoke. Right? You know that wooden thing that they'd hold the, the beasts together with so they could uh, pull the cart. If someone were to say the black ox is the fetter of the white ox or the white ox is the fetter of the black ox, Speaking this way, would they be speaking rightly? And the monks said, well, no, that's, it's not that one is oppressing the other, one is a fetter to one, or the other one is a fetter to the first. And Chitta goes, exactly right. It's not that the black ox is a problem to the white or the white is a problem for the black ox. The problem is the collar or the yoke. And so the image or the simile is the yoke is the craving, the attachment. So it's not the fact that we're a sensitive being, that we have these sensitive eyes and these sensitive ears and a sensitive tongue, a sensitive nose, sensitive to touch, sensitive to thought. And it's not that we see or hear or taste or smell or touch things, think about things. The problem is what arises in conjunction with the sensitivity and the objects that we're sensitive to. And what arises in conjunction we call attachment or grasping, clinging. That's the problem. So that's the danger, right? That's the way to summarize the danger of being a central being. It's not that we sense things, and it's not that there are things that we sense. It's neither of those. The problem is the habit 
of what the mind does when its sensitivity senses what's there to sense. So it's a habit, a very pervasive, very seductive habit that we have. And you can notice it when your mind gets relatively calm and you're just sitting there in a relatively retreated space, you know, where there's not a lot of strong experience coming and going. The body's relatively still. The room's relatively quiet. The eyes are closed, or if they're open, they're just gazing at something relatively neutral. No disturbing sounds, no terrible smells. When we're in a sort of a simple environment in a retreated space, and then it gets so interesting how you know, this is before your body starts to hurt. So the first 10 minutes of your sit, or some of you have been practicing the first 30 minutes of your sit, or maybe longer, you know, where you're relatively comfortable, the pain in the body isn't too strong or too obvious. But isn't it interesting how the mind doesn't, isn't comfortable, it isn't settled. It, it's like always got to do something. I mean, have you noticed that Just the oppressiveness, like the mind always doing something with the objects that it's knowing, whether it's the object of a thought or the object of a sound or a sight or a sensation. It isn't easy for the mind to be, like I called it, a free fall, because it, we need a radical image, simile, because the mind being entangled with the different sense experiences that are being known is so pervasive. We don't, it's hard for us to even imagine what it would be like for the mind in a moment to have absolutely no problem with the different sense experiences that are present, with the thought and the sights and the sounds and the tastes and smells and touches that are present. Because it would be a little bit like that free fall. And one thing that will arise in your practice at some point, you know, where you, you are in a relatively quiet place and the mind is bright and clear, and uh, there will be sort of this, like, uh, the mind's relationship to sense experience is like, don't grab it. <laughs> you know, so you're there. You're not obviously struggling or resisting or having an opinion about sense experience. But there is something still oppressive, which is that sort of practitioner relationship to experience. Like, don't get attached. Don't push or pull. Don't do anything. Right? That's still a relationship to sense. You're still, the mind is still relating to sense experience, but it's relating in this sort of parental way like, don't get fooled. Don't mess around. Don't hold on. Don't push away. But if you, if you can hang out in that space and notice the oppressiveness of that, right? This is really the practice of the second noble truth. Grasping should be released. But we're not trying to release it. We're just recognizing that the mind doesn't have to have a problem right now doesn't have to have a problem. It doesn't have to have a problem. It doesn't have to have a problem. It doesn't have... So it's just sort of hanging out with that understanding until it's like the rug gets pulled out and all of a sudden there isn't a problem. The mind isn't orienting around experience. 
Now, I think I mentioned last week there's sort of two ways to get a direct sense of escape. One is to do it through concentration, where the mind retreats, 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 right? And so when the mind gets quiet, then the object the mind pays attention to is the quietness itself, the calm, the joy of the quietness, the ease of the quietness, the stillness of the quietness. And it keeps retreating, retreating, retreating until it's so retreated from sense experience, right? Because the mind now is paying attention to the mind, the quietness of the mind itself. So then it's, and the more fully aware the mind is of the mind itself, then it's not, the attention isn't going out through the sensitivity of the eye, the sensitivity of smell and taste and touch. There's a time, I forget exactly the situation, but the Buddha was trying to put some other practitioners in their place who were kind of bragging and they were talking about their you know degree of concentration and, and the Buddha said to them well I forget exactly how it goes but it's something like well you know I was sitting you know 50 feet from a, a barn that was struck by lightning and I didn't even notice it or I didn't you know didn't flinch or something like that like the degree that my mind had retreated from sense experience was so profound. So he's talking about concentration, not about insight, but just like our minds can really retreat. You could be having dental work and you wouldn't, it's not like your nerve endings there in your jaw or your tooth aren't doing their normal job in sending the electrical signal to the brain. It's just that that part of the mind that pays attention is so strongly or so clearly, so fully paying attention to something else, it's just not attending to sense experience. And so that experience of deep concentration, like what's called in the tradition the fourth jhana, then the mind realizes, gets a taste of non-attachment. But this is a non-attachment because the mind is retreated from sense impingement. Even thought is, is too gross for that mind because it's paying attention to a very subtle aspect of the mind, a very uh, kind of subtle sense of stillness or peace. And so it's literally retreated. And so the mind knows what it's like to not be oppressed by you know being a central being, always being tugged and pushed around and having opinions about every single sense impingement, every sound, every sight, every thought, every smell and taste, every touch. And we don't notice it because we're always sort of a little bit excited and worried about what's coming down the road or what just happened that we don't realize, and you know, when we've been oppressed for a long time, the mind, it doesn't stand out. So just because, like, we could say, well, you know, we could probably interview a lot of people, and the great majority, maybe, you know, well into the 90%, would say, you know, I don't feel oppressed by sense experience. I don't have a problem being a central being. 
And, even, and that doesn't mean just the people who have a privileged or fortunate existence. Even people who we would think of as having a really difficult, circum, really difficult circumstances, they may say that too. They might be thinking, you know, I'm either okay or I'm okay because I think it's going to turn out better, you know, if I just do this or that or I'm looking forward to things changing. So it's, it's not so easy for us to get this deeper sense of the dukkha of sensuality, the drawbacks. So it would be interesting in your group to talk about this yoke, like your own experience of the yoke. And maybe tonight, too, when you, know, you were getting the direction from me to realize that free fall, realize the mind unencumbered by what's coming and going, not fascinated, not for or against, not oppressed in any way. So we're, we're, we're asking the mind to notice the experience of non-attachment or the, asking the mind to notice the space of the mind that isn't um, agitated, isn't interrupted, isn't disturbed by what's coming and going. Can we notice that in the mind, that in the heart? And to the degree that you couldn't do that, that is the drawback of sensuality. To the degree we can't realize the mind that's not disturbed, the mind that doesn't want to do something, constantly react, respond, think about, adjust you know, in terms of movements, perceive even, like, what was that? What did I just hear? What did I just see? So this is, a, this is dukkha on a subtle level because normally there's grosser dukkha that gets our attention and we don't, like I was saying, we don't really feel so oppressed by that. But when we see the ongoingness of that and then the sort of, um, yeah, just... Uh, the uh, weight of that constant impingement on the mind, on the heart. And then it can beg the question, well, what is the not of that? You know, the, the heart, the mind, not being disturbed in that way, not agitated in that way. Another thing you can share in your small groups tonight, I, I gave that simile from the Buddha about uh, the very dexterous butcher cutting all the flesh off of the bones and then throwing the very clean bones to the dog, you know, and the dog trying to get some nutriment from the bones that all they have is just maybe a little smeared blood and nothing left. And the sort of work of the dog to kind of get something from the bone but not getting anything from the bone. So you could share in your small groups, too, the places in your life, and we've talked about this before, where you see you just keep knocking on that door to find some, like the evenings where we'll look in the fridge, and oh, nothing's there. And then 15, look in the fridge 15 minutes later, you know, or check the Internet. Looking for some, looking for something juicy from sensuality from the world of sense experience. 
and not finding it. And just uh, to kind of get interested in what is this telling me? It's just so interesting to look at our, you know, just our habits in the world. Like we walk, maybe you walk the same distance between, I mean, the same place between your car and your house or your office or wherever. You drive along the same road or you eat the same kind of food or you have an interaction with the same person. And it's like uh, how easy it is for that like not to be okay because there's the mind isn't being entertained or isn't getting any meat, any satisfaction from the experience. And how we're always then needing to change it up, look for something different. This is from Ayakema. In the article, Ayakema, you might not know, but she was a one of the early Western Dharma teachers, she's dead now, and a German woman um, who got out of, um, I think a Jewish, yeah, Jewish-German woman who got out of Germany just before World War II and went to England and uh, eventually, as a young adult, got to the United States after the war and um, had a family, but then got interested in the Buddhist teachings and ordained as a, eventually ordained as a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained nun, and became a very well-known teacher in the West. And this is an article called No Satisfaction. She says uh, a little later, a couple paragraphs down into the article, to look for total satisfaction in oneself is a fruitile endeavor. Neither satisfaction nor self really exists. Since everything changes from moment to moment, where can self and where can satisfaction be found? Yet these two things that the whole world is looking for, and it sounds, yet these two things that the whole world is looking for, and it sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? But since these are impossible to find, everybody is unhappy. Not necessarily because of tragedies, poverty, sickness, or death, simply because of unfulfilled desire. Right? That's the yoke between the two ox. Everybody is looking for something that isn't available. It's worth worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. At least the needle is there, even though it is hard to find. But satisfaction, satisfaction from sense experience, she doesn't say that, but satisfaction and self are both delusions. And how can they ever be found? Searching here and there keeps everyone busy on this little globe of ours. If we were to stop looking for satisfaction for the self, we would have an immediate lessening of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. That's why we get a little flavor of this in a sit, whether we say it out loud in our mind or we just sense it, but you know, we're in a meditation or just in daily life, and the intuition can this be okay, comes to mind, right? And we get a little relief, like, because it, it can interrupt briefly the idea that I'm supposed to be getting something from sense experience. And then we just, the mind is just reminded, well, 
can it be okay? Can the mind drop its need, its sort of agitated need, agitating need to get something? Can it be okay? Ayakema goes on, since, um, since dukkha arises only from wanting something, we would have an immediate lessening of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, since dukkha arises only from wanting something. Also, our self-concept would be minimized, as ego is no longer constantly in the forefront of the mind. Because ego is just the sense of the somebody wanting something from sense experience. So ego, you know, that sort of normal sense of the ego, the agitated ego, is nothing other than the activity of being pushed around by sense experience. Somebody, the sense of a somebody who's got something to get has some need to quench from sense experience. That's ego in the way we normally use that word. And she goes on, one last paragraph, to get to this, to get to this enormous root system that entangles us, we have to use mindfulness. The reason we find it so difficult to be really mindful is the fact that true attention shows us that there is no person, only mind and body. Right? So that's what we mean by this being known, this being known, this being known. She goes on, it is like coming up against a wall, and instead of digging through that wall, The mind veers off and doesn't want to know anything further. True mindfulness has arisen when there is only the action but no doer. With divided mindfulness, we experience both, the one who is mindful and the one who is is being watched. If we use precision in our attention, we see, even if only for a moment, that no person is embedded in our mind-body process. We can never forget that experience. So it's like saying that, you know, with the ox or the black and white ox, the sensitivity and the objects that the sensitivity is sensitive to, to see that that's all there is, that sensitivity being known. So then it really removes the presumed sense that there's a somebody entangled, somebody dependent on sense experience. Doesn't it seem that way? You know, like when I'm sitting and I have pain in my knee, it seems like there's a somebody who's bothered by the pain, who wants to fix the pain. But we can observe that, we can know that as pain being known. And in neither of those is self. It's just sensation being known, sound being heard, sight being seen, thought being known. And so the, because the, the, you know, the next two weeks, we're really going to be interested in escape. And it's not like the self finds the escape. The escape is realizing there isn't a problem with sensuality. The problem is this yoke. What the mind has, you know, erroneously, you know, the habit that has unfortunately developed 
in this experience of something being known. It's like something got created that has all kinds of ramifications. And one of the ramifications of this perceived sense of self that got created is its sort of reinforcement. Because the sense of a self has a problem then with feeling, the, the feeling that goes with sense experience. You know, every sense experience, there's a feeling that goes with it. And now there's a self who is having that feeling and is dependent on that feeling, has a problem with that feeling. This is a, a really interesting story. Some of you have heard from the time of the Buddha. And one of the, the most well-known female lay supporters of the Buddha, Visaka, um, uh, was a... Um, went to the Buddha one day. I, did, I don't think I mentioned this last week. Let me know. Tell me if I told you the story last week. But she showed up to the Buddha, and she, I think she was the queen, and uh, her hair was wet, and she was a little disheveled, and the Buddha said, well, what's going on? Something like that. And she said, well, my, one of my grandchildren had died. Datta, I think, was the grandson's name. And um, obviously she was really sorrowful, that her grandchild had died and uh, asked the Buddha for help. And uh, the Buddha asked her, well, you know, would you, asked her if she would be happy if she had as many grandchildren as there are citizens in Savati, which is a pretty big town at the time of the Buddha. And she said, yes, I would like that many grandchildren. I think she actually did have a lot of grandchildren too, but anyways, not that many. And, uh, and she then the Buddha said, well, about how many people in Sabati die every day? You know, so she thought, she said, well, you know, certainly more than a couple, maybe a handful, maybe a couple handfuls. And he said, oh, so every day, that many. So if you had that many grandchildren, then every day there'd be that, that kind of loss. And she was already... Uh, had stream entry, so she had some deep insight already when the Buddha gave her this teaching. And so, you know, and the, and the, the basic teaching here from the Buddha was that things we love are painful. That's sort of interesting, you know, for those of you who are looking for a partner or for those of you, you know, who are looking for a new car or a new home or a better job or you know, whatever attachment that we currently are justifying that will lead to our happiness, right? To, to kind of see that. So does it mean, he's not saying you shouldn't have grandkids or you shouldn't have a partner, just that you shouldn't be thinking that an attachment leads to happiness, so what is it to have a partner, to have grandkids, to have a nice meal without the attachment? That's an experience we want to realize. What does it mean? Just That's exactly what we were doing in a more simple way because we weren't having, most of us, enthralling experiences as we were sitting for 30 minutes, right? 
that we were trying to see, trying to realize the non-attachment to whatever experiences we were having. But when you go home, and let's say you're going to have something to eat, or you're going to watch some entertainment, or get in your warm, comfortable bed, or whatever you're going to do, then just to be curious about that experience without any attachment, without the mind being dependent on it at all. So what is it to receive pleasant experience or to receive unpleasant experience without the attachment? To really get curious these last two weeks about the escape. But for today in the small groups, to emphasize more uh, the drawbacks and what you've learned from this and to sort of set this in motion. Another well-known quote from the time of the Buddha, how do you construe this practitioner, practitioners? Which is greater, the tears you have shed while, while transmigrating and wandering this long time from birth to birth, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing and from being separated from what is pleasing, or the water in the four great oceans? This is greater, the tears you have shed. Why is that? From an inconstruable beginning, practitioners, comes this constant passing on. A beginning point is not evident. Though beings hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving, right, that's the yoke, or taking rebirth, wandering on, long have you thus experienced the stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries long enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned things, right? with sensuality, to become dispassionate enough to become released. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Has it been long enough? You know, Are we curious? Or are we just interested in sort of gaining competent, competence in setting emotion more pleasant and less unpleasant experience for ourselves. And it's really okay, you know, if that's, it's what's, re- what's useful is to be honest about it. No, I think I'm really after, you know, doing my best, taking my competence, my life energy, and trying to set in motion a lot of pleasant experience for myself and, and minimize the unpleasant experience. Like even at our house, you know, Wynn and I, even though we're still in our 50s, you know, we're thinking, okay, it's a pain in the butt to have to move, so can we make this house suitable for when we're really old, you know, and, you know, and to live here as long as possible so we don't have to go into a nursing home until the very, or maybe not at all, you know. To, so when we're, okay, put bars in the bathroom, you know, so that we got, you know, a tub or a shower that you don't have to step into, but can just get into it easily as an older person and a way for a wheelchair to get in and out if any of us are ever wheelchair bound. But you see that, even though I think that's like skillful, like that's what I call being competent, like really planning for these things, but it's sort of, it's stressful. Even that is stressful, but I'm not saying it's still, I think, relatively skillful, but it would be even more liberating to be okay, no matter what happens. Like even the sort of worst case, whatever that would be, you know, probably different for each of us, but you know, like 
dementia, dementia maybe for some of you, or just a lot of physical pain for other people, or you know, suddenly, to die suddenly, or you can't say goodbye, or a long, you know, a prolonged dying process. So, you know, it's just like to die, bef- to die, or to lose children before you die, or, you know, there's like all these sort of deals we want to make so that, like, we're minimizing it. But how about being okay with however it plays out? So that, yeah, we still may put bars up in our bathroom, but I'm okay with however it plays out. doesn't mean we don't, you know, do whatever we're going to do. So just again, in terms of the danger and the escape, the Buddha says, and what is the emancipation from sensuality? What is the freedom from sensuality? Whatever is the subduing of passion and desire, right, craving, the abandoning of passion and desire for sensuality, that is the emancipation from sensuality. Letting the world of sense experience being what it is. Let it be what it is. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.